Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm going to be covering the whole of chapter four, so in the interest of time, I'm not going to read it. Plus, I would want to massacre the names once, so no need to do it two different times. But I do ask you to pray with me. Lord, we do pray that you would bless these lips of clay. Father, take your word, let them find fertile soil this morning. And that whatever the people would need, oh God, you would reveal yourself to them by your Holy Spirit and meet that need. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Solomon was incredible. Try making up just one proverb worth writing down and passing on. Solomon wrote 3,000. Well, people have tried to make up their own. Here's a few that I found on the internet. Common sense is like deodorant. The people who need it most never use it. (laughs) Whoever said nothing is impossible never tried slamming a revolving door. One way to find out if you're old is to fall down in front of a crowd. If they laugh at you, you're still young. If they run to you concerned, you're getting old. I love this one. If a man said he'll fix it, he'll fix it. There's no need to nag him every six months about it. (laughs) The hot dog is the noblest of all dogs. It feeds the hand that bites it. (laughs) Or always drink coffee because hating your job should be done with enthusiasm. And finally, my wife just said, you weren't even listening, were you? And I thought, that's a funny way to start a conversation. (laughs) Look at verse 1 with me. Now, King Psalm was king over all Israel. These were his officials. Azariah, the son of Zadok, was the priest. Eliarup and Ahijah, the son of Shisha, were scribes. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the army. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the deputies. And Zabah, the son of Nathan, a priest, was the king's confidant. And Ahiashar was over the household, 
And Adoniram, the son of Abda, was over the forced labor. Let's face it. We are materialistic from the moment we draw our first breath. We're obsessed with comfort, which at that point means a full tummy, some cuddling, and a clean diaper. From there, we become obsessed with our mommies, our bottles, our toys, and just about anything colorful and shiny. We're reaching for and grabbing for everything we can get our chubby little hands on, and we're crying for those things that are out of reach. Who can deny that we are all born with a strong affinity for materialism? Now, this eventually will be a big problem for Solomon. The chapter before us gives us a list of things that made up Solomon's kingdom. But what is one to make of a list of cabinet officials and district officers? And there are notes about the happiness of the populace, a tabulation of some dietary requirements for the royal table, along with some reports about barley for horses and remarks about other things such as hyssop shrubs. What does all that have to do with anything? I mean, who really cares? Why these lists? Why does this have to do with anything? Because they are another evidence of the wisdom that God gave Solomon. The text implies that God's gift of wisdom extends to the ordering of life and affairs. We need to understand that there is a wideness in biblical wisdom. It's not only concerned with moral judgments, but also with efficient and orderly structure that keeps chaos and waste from ruining our lives. Some of us deplore having to give attention to administrative and organizational matters. And it is true, we can so tightly structure life that we can squeeze the life out of it. Nevertheless, a few moments in a chaotic home or workplace or even a church lacking clear lines of authority can quickly create a thirst for order. In 1 Kings chapter 4, we find a description of the wonders of Solomon's kingdom. At first sight, you might think that this is one of the less interesting chapters in the Bible. There are lists with names and numbers, no doubt drawn from the official records of Solomon's government. Not exactly riveting stuff. And you wonder, is this the Bible's version of Ambien? The story we have been reading is going to be put on hold while these statistics and details are recorded. It is one of the many Bible passages that any reader might be tempted to skip over very quickly but I think that would be a mistake. The value of this chapter lies in the ways in which we will see the foreshadowed here, the kingdom of the greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. Solomon was now the third king of Israel, and so the kingdom had already been through multiple administrations. And Solomon knew that the promises that God had made to David, including the promise of a royal dynasty that would last from age to age, but he also knew that the promise that God made to him that he would become famous for his incomparable wisdom. Here was a kingdom that was destined to make its mark on the world. Solomon was building something 
to last. More importantly, God was building something to last by laying the foundation for a kingdom that would one day never end. I love in verse 5 where we are told that Zebud was the king's confidant, or some versions say he was the king's friend. What a great title. That's what I want to be known for. I want to be a friend of the king. And you know what? Jesus says that we can. For he said, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Yet one thing in this orderly list seems to strike a wrong note, especially for a nation that had been enslaved to Egypt. In verse 6 we read that Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. This was something the prophet Samuel had warned about when the people of Israel first demanded that they wanted a king to be like all the other nations. And the prophet told them they needed to be careful for what they wished for. Because one day that king would take their children and put them into forced labor. And surprise, surprise, that is precisely what is going to happen. Putting someone in charge of the forced labor is another warning sign that Solomon is not the perfect king. And that tragic pitfalls in his character will lead to a spiritual downfall. One commentator says, If we remember the outcome of the Solomon's narrative in chapters 11 and 12, and if we pay attention to the subtle detail of the text, we may notice below the surface success the rumblings of troublesome things to come. Verse 7, please. Solomon had 12 deputies over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each deputy had to provide food for a month in the year, and these were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker and Machaz and Shealbom and Beth-Shemesh and Elon-Beth-Hanan, Ben-Haseth and Arubath, Succah was his in all his land of Hefer, Ben-Abinadab in all the hills of Dor, Tapith the daughter of Solomon was his wife, Beana the son of Ahulud and Teonic and Megiddo, and Beth-Sheen, which is beside Zareth and below Jezreel, from Beth-Sheen to Abel-Maholah as far as the other side of Jokmeam, Ben-Geber and Ramoth-Gilead, the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead, were his, the region of Argob, which is in the Bashan, sixty great cities and walls and bronze bars were his, Ahinadad, the son of Edo and Mahinam, Ahimaz and Naphtali, he also married Basimah, the daughter of Solomon, Beana the son of Husha and Asher and Bealoth, Jehoshaphat the son of Perua and Issachar, Shimei the son of Elah and Benjamin, Geber the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan, and he was the only deputy who was in the land. Those may not be the correct pronunciations. Solomon was following the same basic advice that Jethro had given to Moses when he was worn out by the heavy burden of leading the Israelites. The answer to that was to appoint 70 elders to rule the people of Israel. In this case, Solomon appointed 12 officers to rule 12 territories. And however famous they probably were in that day, 
the men in charge of these districts are no longer household names. And needless to say, the Ben-Hur mentioned in verse 8 was not the famous chariot driver. And it's easy for us to overlook people like this in the Bible with all their unfamiliar and unpronounceable names. But the lives of these men matter to them and they matter to God. And that should remind us they should matter to us also because we too matter to God. This teaches us that in the kingdom of God, every person matters. And it might do us good to remember that most of the people in the world have no idea who we are either. And our names to them may sound as strange as Ben Decker and Ahinadab sounds to us. But every one of them is known by God and has the ability to serve in his kingdom. So we should not be discouraged, therefore, if our service to Christ seems insignificant or sometimes if it gets overlooked by others. God knows the people who belong to him and he remembers all the work that we do for his glory, even to the giving of a cup of cold water. Look at verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Now Solomon was ruling over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. The vocabulary of chapter 4 with all of his talk about the sand and the seashore and the kingdoms of Egypt from, or from Egypt to the Euphrates refers directly and explicitly to the covenant promises that God had made to Abraham. This is one of the many places where we encounter a recurring theme that ties the Bible together. In his covenant with Abraham, God had promised him both land and seed. He would make the descendants of Abraham as numerous as the sand on the seashore and in a large and bountiful country that they could call their very own. Now the promises of this covenant are coming true to the joy of God's people. You know, today we can leave here and go to McDonald's and get absolutely stuffed on the dollar menu. But historically, to be able to go to bed at night and not have hunger pains, well, that was a pretty good day. But life in Solomon's kingdom was an ongoing banquet and a joyful one. In this kingdom, the promised blessing of God is being richly enjoyed. Here we see the peace and incredible prosperity that we have in Solomon's kingdom. Yet we need to remember that that peace and that prosperity that Solomon and his people are experiencing was based upon the war and the bloodshed of David the man who had preceded him. And in the same way, as we feast upon his word, as we come into his presence, we enjoy that peace and prosperity because the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, went to war on our behalf and shed his blood in our place. In the words of one commentator, the land Moses desired Joshua conquered and David subdued, now lay in the hands of a man of unsurpassed wisdom. The long promised land was flowing with milk and honey. 
The people were living the good life, and they ate, and they drank, drank, and they were happy. The even cooler thing is that the kingdom of Christ is bigger than Solomon's kingdom, with even more people in it, coming from even more nations. Jesus said that when he would be lifted up, he would draw all men to himself. There he took the guilt offering of our sin upon himself, dying in our place and offering his blood to atone for our sins. But Jesus also said this to announce his intention to save the people of all nations. And being lifted up on the cross, he would draw all people to himself. And this is exactly what has happened. Down through history, hundreds of millions of people have joined the kingdom of God through faith in Christ and his crucifixion. It's happening right now as believers in Christ share the gospel with their friends and families and as missionaries go throughout the world proclaiming his name. The promise that God made to Abraham, which was only partially fulfilled in the days of Solomon, is coming totally true even in our lifetimes. Look at verse 22. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened geese. For he was ruling over everything west of the Euphrates River from Tipshah even to Gaza, over all the kings west of the river, and he had peace on all sides surrounding him. So Judah and Israel lived securely, everyone under his vine and fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Needless to say, anybody who has 700 wives and 300 concubines, plus numerous officials and frequent guests, would have a very large household to feed. I think if anyone in the ancient world would have dug Black Friday, it would have been Solomon. In fact, it's no stretch to say that for him, every day was Black Friday. By his own admission, he lived his life on a relentless quest to acquire as much stuff as possible. He wrote in Ecclesiastes these words, I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate the, my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also, I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. The book of Ecclesiastes is basically Solomon explaining how wrong he was about trying to find happiness. He thought happiness would grow right along with his wealth. He believed the more stuff that he accumulated, the happier he would be. Well, he was wrong. 
Right now, the world is full of people who are discovering that same error in their thinking. Now, some are young and are just starting to feel the small twinges of disappointment. Others are older and suffering regret on an epic scale. So let's think about that. Why do materialistic people so often end up being unhappy? Well, for one reason, you can't predict the future. Listen to this little dose of common sense from Solomon in Ecclesiastes 10.8. When you dig a well, you might fall in. When you demolish an old wall, you could be bitten by a snake. When you work in a quarry, stones might fall and crush you. When you chop wood, there is danger with each stroke of your axe. So much of the acquisition of wealth depends upon the anticipation of future events. Which stocks are going to soar and which ones are going to crash? Which new products are going to catch on and which ones are going to be quickly forgotten? Which young entrepreneurs are going to be successful? And which one of those are going to bomb? Which one of the companies who wants to hire you is going to thrive? And which one is going, is going to go out of business in five years? In those passages, Solomon is pointing out one of life's great eternal truths, and that is, you just never know what's going to happen. You're out to dig a well thinking, I mean, no big deal. How hard can it be to scoop dirt? But then you fall in and break your back. Or you pick up your axe, kiss your sweetie goodbye, and tell her you'll be home for dinner with some firewood. But as you're chopping, you get distracted and lop off half your foot. My beloved, know one thing. Life is the greatest curveball pitcher in history. Just when you think you've got it all figured out, just when you think you have the perfect strategy, just when you think you know what to invest in, just when you think you have a leg up on the competition, something happens that you weren't counting on. I've yet to find one scholar who believes that Solomon's all-out obsession with material things please God. In fact, the biggest problem of Solomon's wealth was that it was obviously not godly, either in its acquisition or in its application. As I've already pointed out, Solomon gained much of his wealth by burdening the people with heavy taxation and harsh labor demands. But initially, everything was hunky-dory, or hunkus dorkus in the Greek. Every man under his vine and fig tree is a delightful picture of tranquility and peace, appearing here for the first time in the Old Testament. This image is going to be uh, employed in various ways by many other prophets, and this is a prophetic peak into the millennium. Micah prophesied that when Jesus Christ comes back, every man shall dwell under his vine and his fig tree. In other words, when Jesus comes back, everything is going to be made right. This will mean peace and prosperity, not only internally, but materially and physically as well. Again, we see in Solomon's kingdom an, an anticipation of the kingdom of David's greater son. 
Jesus said, And people will come from the east and the west and from north and south and recline at the kingdom of God. Verse 26, please. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those deputies provided food for King Solomon and all who came to King Solomon's table each in his month. They allowed nothing to be lacking. They also brought barley and straw for the war horses and baggage horses to the place where it was required, each deputy according to his duty. Without taking away from the astonishingly positive picture we are being given of Solomon's kingdom, the mention of horses and chariots, a bit like earlier the mention of forced labor in verse 6, strikes a discordant note. You see, gold wasn't Solomon's only obsession. He also appears to have had a thing for horses, a big thing. Judging from the fact that he owned 12,000 of them. And even granting that if the horse was the ancient equivalent of a car, and it wouldn't be unusual for a king to own several, still, 12,000? And then there was this harem, of course, which everybody's heard about, and I'm going to address at length in chapter 11. The main reason why we know that all this wealth wasn't the wealth that God wanted him to have, even though he had promised Solomon to give him great wealth, is the fact that it stands in direct violation of God's command in Deuteronomy 17:16, where we read, The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. The Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. The king must not take many wives for himself because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver and gold for himself. Didn't Samuel warn in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that there would be trouble with a king who had many chariots and horsemen? Up to this point in the Bible, the only people in Israel to acquire chariots had been Absalom and Adonijah. And those are hardly encouraging precedents. Here is a further hint that Solomon's materialism is one of the most striking aspects of his seduction. Sadly, a lot of people today follow the same path. Now, they don't accumulate the wealth anywhere near the wealth that Solomon had, but that's not the point. You see, materialism is not about your balance sheet. It's about your heart. You can be dirt poor and still be materialistic if your heart is set on material things. That's why the lottery makes most of its money off of very poor people. So what Solomon is doing here by acquiring all these horses and chariots is bad because he is modeling before the whole nation that I don't think God alone is enough to protect us. Ultimately, it comes down to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will either love the one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and you'll despise the other. No man can serve both God and money. No one illustrates this 
better than Solomon. The more he chased wealth and possessions, the further he got away from God. It is that reason why God firmly stated that a king should not, accumulated, should not accumulate horses and gold because God knew what would happen. Verse 29, please. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other people, more than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcal, and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also told 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He told of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He also told of animals, birds, crawling things, and fish. People came from all the nations to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Verse 30 says, He was wiser than all men. If I was wiser than all men, I would have t-shirts and hats made up proclaiming that. I mean, when this guy opened his mouth on any subject, that was the end of, of the discussion. Imagine always being the smartest person in any room that you would walk into. Now most of Solomon's 3,000 Proverbs have been lost because only about 600 are recorded in the book of Proverbs. Finally, it says Solomon possessed knowledge of botany and biology. This type of encyclopedic knowledge was highly valued in the Near East. And so it's no wonder that his fame spread to other countries. Without question, God had been faithful to this king. But will that faithfulness be returned in kind? Peace and prosperity reigned while Solomon was king. But no matter how successful things appeared to all the citizens and the visitors, all was not well in the kingdom. During the period between his ascension to the throne and his dedication to the temple, Solomon appears to have walked with the Lord and sought to please him. But Alexander White expressed it vividly when he wrote this. He said, The secret worm was gnawing all the time in the royal staff upon which Solomon leaned. Really, Solomon didn't have the steadfast devotion and love and worship that characterized his father David. And as many pagan wives that he's going to have are going to plant bitter seeds in his heart that's going to bear idolatrous fruit. As we finish up this morning, we must understand that the only way to beat extreme behavior is with extreme behavior. An alcoholic, for example, will never kick his drinking problem by trying to cut back and drink in moderation. His only hope is to quit drinking completely. A porn addict will never overcome his addiction by looking at fewer dirty pictures. His only hope is to stop looking at dirty pictures altogether. And the same is true with materialism. It can only be defeated 
with extreme generosity. That's why when Jesus approached a man who was a hoarder, he didn't mollycoddle him with platitudes about maybe not buying so much stuff. No, he told the guy to go and sell all of his possessions. That's right, all of his possessions. Jesus knew the only way to beat, to beat extreme behavior is with extreme behavior. And he was telling hoarders in every generation to do an about-face. The problem this morning for us is that materialism and workaholism can seem so right in America. But it will never provide happiness. But to hear workaholics talk, you would think it does. But look around. The world is full of broke workaholics and divorced workaholics and stressed out workaholics and unhappy workaholics and dead workaholics. But despite the seed of trouble to come, the picture we are given here this morning is a picture of a well-ordered and peaceful kingdom where the priesthood is more important than the army and where all records are kept and nothing is forgotten. So let's turn our minds to the kingdom that is foreshadowed here. It will be a kingdom of perfect peace where there will be a reliable name of all the names who belong there. In Solomon's kingdom this morning, we see a shadow of the greater kingdom to come, that of Jesus Christ. And if you aren't, you can be part of that kingdom this very morning. It's yours for the asking. Pray with me. And Father, it can seem so right to accumulate things and try to convince myself that I'm doing well and that somehow is going to answer all the big questions in life. But Solomon had everything. That's why I think one reason why you gave him more than any man will ever have. Because at the end of the day, he can look back through Ecclesiastes and cry out, vanity, vanity. Everything is vanity except for knowing you. I pray you would drive that truth home to every heart here, starting with mine. You are the only way to have true purpose and fulfillment in life. And anything we try to put in your place will never satisfy us. Make that even more real to us, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.